Thank you for listening to and sharing Our Body Politic. As we wrap up the year that has felt like a thousand years in one, we're so grateful to have you on this journey with us. When you write reviews on Apple Podcasts, it helps others find us and join us. So if you can, please consider leaving a review. We can't wait to read your feedback. So thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. The House Select Committee continues to investigate the insurrection of January 6th. The latest part they pieced together includes a scathing revelation that three Fox News hosts reached out that day to the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to ask Trump to intervene. These hosts, of course, portrayed themselves both before and after January 6th as ardent Trump supporters. It highlights the role that journalists at all levels play in supporting or undermining our democracy. That's something our next guest thinks a lot about. Nicole Hannah-Jones is the Pulitzer Prize-winning creator of the 1619 Project with the New York Times. The series of journalistic essays, poems, and fiction is now a book, The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. She's also the night chair in race and journalism at Howard University. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I want to jump into the essay that you had as part of the 1619 Project when that came out in the summer of 2019. And it starts out, my dad always flew an American flag in our front yard. What did you understand that flag to be as you were growing up and also in the context of being someone who is reframing and lifting up? accurate American history. Tell us why you started there. I saw that flag as a very outward display of patriotism that did not make sense to me. I knew my dad was patriotic. My dad uh, was a veteran. He definitely took a great deal of pride in having served his country. And I just didn't understand that display because I also know that my dad was born, you know, in Mississippi and worked a bunch of menial jobs most of his life because he was never able to get opportunities that he went to segregated schools that we lived in a red line neighborhood. And so I I just it it didn't make sense to me. And I was deeply conflicted about it. And I think I'm still deeply conflicted about what does patriotism look like for Black Americans in a country where we only exist here because of slavery? You know, just to stay on this for a second, I was telling someone this weekend about my family's long military history. My grandmother's grandfather fought in the Civil War, and members of my family have fought in almost every modern war, and we did the flag ceremonies and and all that. And three of my four maternal uncles served in the military. But it also came for me with a structural understanding of the differences between my family's experiences. There is this fundamental complexity of who are we as Black Americans who have served, who have lived, who have built this country? Do you think of it that way? Yes, for sure. The military, of course, is in some ways we see it as the highest calling of patriotism because it is showing a willingness to actually put your life down 
for your country. And we also know that Black Americans have always had to fight for that right to serve their country, that George Washington didn't want Black people to serve in the Revolutionary War. White Americans didn't want Black people to serve in the Civil War. And Black people had to really fight and press Lincoln to allow them to take up arms in the defense of their country and for their own liberation. World War I, World War II, Black people were fighting in a segregated army. They weren't being recruited. Black people get recruited when there is a desperate need for more soldiers. And mm. only then do we start to you know, get it integrated into the, the forces to serve our country. And yet Black people understand these moments as political moments to try to push the country then to recognize our citizenship by saying, if we joined up to fight for this country, now you owe us and you cannot treat us as non-citizens after we have been willing to put our lives down uh, on the line for this country, which is also one of the reasons many white Americans didn't want Black people to serve because they also inherently understood that. So what the project is doing, I mean, the military is is a great lens to me to really deal with that grappling, with that sense of conflict. Black Americans have inherited a country that we never chose to be in in the first place, but we're here. And how do you turn that country into your own country? Because this is the only country you will ever have. We will be here. So what do we do with that? Yeah, I mean, just quickly before we move on, there was a film that came out earlier this year on PBS called The Blinding of Isaac Woodard, who was a World War II veteran. He was basically beaten blind by a local police chief. And it strikes me that at these moments where Black Americans display citizenship, it can be viewed as a deep threat by some people, not not a display of loyalty and courage, but as a threat to this construct of what America is. And you, in producing the 1619 Project, which won a Pulitzer, have been perceived as a threat. At least 11 Republican-led states have passed laws or resolutions censoring what teachers can say about race in classrooms. And there is a New Hampshire law that says, in part, no teacher shall advocate any doctrine or theory promoting a negative account or representation of the founding and history of the United States of America in New Hampshire public schools, which does not include the worldwide context of now outdated and discouraged practices. And this is the nut of the graph. Such prohibition includes but is not limited to teaching that the United States was founded on racism. When you read language like that, how do you think the body politic should respond? Not Nicole Hannah-Jones, but like, how should we as citizens, local, state, federal citizens, respond to this idea that you just, there's stuff you just can't talk about? For right, we should be absolutely astounded and outraged at laws such as this. If we were to take that text and say that that text was coming out of Cuba or coming out of China, we would very clearly see the authoritarian nature of what they are arguing. We would, all of us, no matter you know where we sit on the political spectrum, would say that is abhorrent. I've been, as you know, writing about racial inequality, reporting on racial inequality my entire 20-year career. And I've never seen a response to anything like this. 
in many of these so-called anti-critical race theory, which are really anti-history laws being passed, the 1619 Project in these laws is banned by name. We should be protesting against these laws. We should be organizing against these laws because what these laws are, I mean, I've been reading a lot about fascism, about authoritarianism, and the Yale philosopher Jason Stanley in his book, How Fascism Works, talks about how important these types of laws are in paving the way towards authoritarianism because you have to start by uh, creating the sense of a mythic past and you have to outlaw a teaching of history that doesn't glorify the, the majority and glorify those who are in power and the history of those who are in power. So I, I, I look at how tepid the response has been, and, and I think it's deeply disappointing and shocking to me. We should be outraged. And, and one of the laws seeks to make teaching some of this a felony. It, it clearly speaks to the legacy of 1619 and not the legacy of 1776, and I, I actually don't understand it. We don't have to accept this. We have yep. power. We're not exercising it, but we have power to stop what's happening. So we have to decide, do we as citizens actually believe in democracy or not? And what are we willing to put on the line for it? Let me pivot a little bit. You have been, um, you know, this year has been a year where you have been in a mode of building and are looking at doing work with Howard University. How, how is that going to the extent you can talk about it? Sure. So, yes, I am founding a center at Howard University called the Center for Journalism and Democracy, which really goes uh, to these core issues and really was born out of my frustration with the way the political media has been covering uh, our slide into authoritarianism. I mean, we were listed this year on the IDA's list of backsliding democracies for the first time. Scholars of democracy have been ringing the alarm about what's happening. We know that more and more evidence is coming out about that Trump and his supporters were literally planned a coup on the Capitol. And yet the response in the media has been to me a normalizing as if there's just a, I think there is a kind of innate belief that our democracy will hold that. Yes. You know, it's taken some Mm. things, some, some things aren't going as they should, but overall, our institutions are strong, which is not borne out in history. I mean, as yep, you know, Farai, yep. the idea that we've had a long-running democracy has been predicated on exclusion. And now that we have Black voters, voters of color, you know, Indigenous and Latino voters in Arizona flipping that state, Black voters, very heavy turnout flipping Georgia, really determining the election, we have one political party that is making it very clear they actually don't believe in multiracial representative democracy. And yet this both-sidism way that we cover our country is not demonstrating that. And so this center that I'm founding is really trying to create journalists who have the ability to do investigative reporting, but also historically informed reporting, where they Mm. can see the echoes of what's happening because they are studying this history through the lens um, of the Black press in particular, which, of course, always had to be skeptical of the claims of American democracy because we didn't experience it. We saw the lies of that. And I'm having to build an entire center from the ground up. And what's critical is not only will the center be 
really bolstering historically informed investigative reporting in service of democracy at Howard, but also at a constellation of historically Black colleges that, that offer journalism. Because I really do think the type of journalism that the Black press has had to produce because of our particular history here is what is necessary in this moment. Very grateful for you joining us again. Thank you, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Thank you so much. Nicole Hannah-Jones is an award-winning journalist for The New York Times Magazine and a professor at Howard University. The end of the year is a wonderful time to catch up on all those books you've been meaning to read. And these days, books can be powerful and relevant as well as entertaining. Elizabeth Mendez-Berry is vice president and executive editor at One World, part of Penguin Random House, and co-founder of Critical Minded, a grant-making and learning initiative that supports cultural critics of color in the United States. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Greta, to be here. And we've also got Lisa Lucas returning to the show, senior VP and publisher of Pantheon and Shockin' Books, part of Knopf Doubleday. Hey, Lisa. Hey, it's great to be back. So let me start with you, Elizabeth. You know, women of color are over-consumers of books compared to many other demographics. And One World, your house that you're at, and helping to champion and lead and edit some of the most powerful intellectuals in America, is publishing people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, who are pretty much directly under attack, not even indirectly you know, in a general sense, but very directly being banned. What what do you make of this era and how it's perceiving the work of your authors? You know, the way I think about this stuff is that the public square is so contested, so important. And when who holds that square and who dominates that square and who has the power to articulate their ideas, their vision, their analysis, when that shifts, there's a group of people who get very angry and very scared. And that combination is, of course, combustible and toxic. So the banning of books is not new, but the combination of banning of books, you know, at the most local level, at the library, at the school, you know, the school library in in these spaces has now trickled up (laughs) to legislation to where 1619 in particular has been banned in multiple states. I think it means that we're strong. I think it means that they're scared. I think it means that the notion of a new narrative about this country that destabilizes its longstanding belief in its own innocence is so devastating to people for whom the only way that this country can exist is innocent. I believe that what we're doing at One World is we believe that when the myth of American innocence ends, that's when a much more interesting country emerges, a country that is willing to dwell in its contradictions and willing to actually grow. Recently, we had a series of conversations about what it's like to critique Black art and hold Black artists accountable for their actions. You know, it was regarding Dave Chappelle specifically, but I think it's not just about Black art. It's about, in general, when someone is, quote, your people, whatever your people are, how do you assess them 
in ways that are culturally contextual. So Karen Atia, who's a Washington Post columnist and a contributor here, said that she wanted better for us. She said, quote, because we're in a white-dominated, male-dominated society, there's this instinct to want to promote and protect Black expression at all costs. Lisa, how do you make sense of these conversations about respectability, politics, inclusion, and where we are today? Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the things is we're both babies of Vibe and The Source, where I also worked back in the day. And I I grew up, my mom worked in Black media. She worked at a place called Uniworld, which is a Black ad agency. I think that when you have the luck to grow up in spaces that are, you know, by us and for us, right, you, you ultimately have a better sense of the nuance that is required, right? You're able to have those conversations about, okay, so we're women coming up in hip hop journalism. Actually, I don't know if I love the way that, you know, I'm being represented or that there's not a conversation about representation. So you start to lose the nuance in these conversations, you know, where there is space to talk about the black vernacular, to talk about misogyny and hip hop, to talk about colorism, to talk about Black capitalism and whether or not it's good or bad. These are things that because you are at such an uh, an infancy of thinking about the breadth of BIPOC publishing, that you're not able to sort of, you don't have the main text that talks about X, Y, and Z problem in Black America, let alone the tertiary issues that are of the utmost importance to everybody living inside of our skin and bodies. So I think that that's the job, too, to sort of not just champion a work by a person of color, but to also say that I'm laying the groundwork both structurally in terms of bringing on editors and marketers and all of the people who do the work, but also to integrate not just Black stories, but a wide variety of Black stories, a wide variety of female stories. So, Elizabeth, you know, you you wrote an article for Vibe 15 years ago, Love Hurts, that sort of touches on some of these questions. How do you, like, maybe give us small example of how you've made sense of this. Yeah, I mean, I I love Hertz as a great example. I think, you know, fundamentally that when we pretend that things are okay when they're not okay with the people we love, we're preventing ourselves and each other from growing. The role of the critic, this is one of the things I think so much about because I've learned since we founded Critical Minded several years ago that a lot of people don't actually really know what criticism is. And can you just explain what Critical Minded is, which is incredible? I was introduced to some of the the cultural critics of color that you brought together at Sundance a couple years ago. Explain what that is before continuing. Absolutely. So Critical Minded is an initiative that I co-founded. And basically what we were trying to do is figure out a way of supporting critics of color because all of the different supports that had existed that had enabled some people like me to develop over the years, like working for Alternative Weeklies or like Lisa working for Vibe Magazine and actually kind of, you know, all of these spaces where we were able to see excellence and understand excellence as not uh, something that was, you know, exclusively the domain of white institutions that was no longer available. And so the question was, what, what, does, what does that mean, not just for critics, but for art and culture and democracy more broadly? And I think that's a little bit what I believe criticism is so valuable for. And I think at the end of the day, when you have a frank and honest conversation about whatever it is, including culture, that means that you care about someone or something enough to believe that they deserve to hear the truth. Yeah. Thinking of influential books, I I think of Greg Tate's Flyboy and the Buttermilk. And I really cried for him. 
I just realized that among other things for me, Elizabeth, he represented the positive male gaze that just accepted me for who I was at every stage of my life and didn't want me to be more than I am or or want me to be less than I am. And I just felt very seen by him in a way that really breaks me up to this moment. Can you tell folks who he was a little bit more? I was reflecting on this. I was thinking about, you know, reading him and the importance and power of reading him as a critic who had been, you know, who made it such an important role at the Village Voice, which when I think about cultural criticism, it was such an important incubator and, and laboratory for so many people. And he was really the epitome of that, you know. And then you have the person. I called myself a tater tot, you know, there were a group <laughs> I of <love> us <laughs> who called ourselves tater tots because he gave us a way of understanding what criticism could be in the world and how we could be as critics, uniquely, specifically, and vivaciously ourselves, right? And and I just, I'm a little bit resentful, like when I think about where the fact that he, you know, his last books were coming out on a university press. I love the university press. I am um, appreciate the university press for doing it. And I'm also enraged that he was not one of the beneficiaries of this wave that we have now of younger people who are extraordinarily talented and deserve the visibility and support that they get, you know, I wish he had gotten it too. Yeah. The world was built by the Tates, right? And, you know, the cultural world I inhabit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think back to Stanley Crouch, who's writing for the Village Voice at the same time, and he's saying hip-hop is terrible and, (laughs) you know, jazz has changed in ways that is offensive and, you know, brilliant man. You know, I disagree with 95% of all the things that he ever said, but I found his mind to be quite rigorous. Now, unfortunately, we were willing because it criticized us, because it criticized some of the parts of Blackness that were complicated for white America, he found a home at major publishers. But the tapes that celebrated hip-hop, that that said to us, you know, this is a new world order, and this is a new culture, and that it is deep and intelligent and rigorous and changing lives and the world, and it is not lesser in any way, and it's beautiful. It's just difficult to see that they were a lost generation in terms of wider publication and celebration. Yeah. So last question, very short. Name a book coming out on your imprints in 2022. One book that you want us to read. Elizabeth first and then Lisa. Oh my goodness. I'm going to say Woman of Light by Kelly Fajardo-Einstein. It's historical fiction, but it's vibrant. It's One World Does Historical Fiction, which means that it's feels present and prescient. And it's about indigenous identified Latinx people in Colorado in the 19th century. And it's just a phenomenal yarn. I can't wait. Lisa? I'm really excited about Margot Jefferson's Constructing a Nervous System, which is a memoir and has all of her traditional sort of unexpected you know, critical lens on the art that made her the complications of a ornery mind. Elizabeth and Lisa, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank Thank you so much. Pleasure always. That was Lisa Lucas, Senior Vice President and Publisher at Pantheon and Shockin' Books, and Elizabeth Mendez-Berry, VP and Executive Editor at One World. 
A lot of creatives in publishing, but also across mediums like journalism and podcasting, video content, and social media are getting out of traditional workplaces and building their own empires. My next guest helps these creatives make sure that those empires are built on solid ground. Merlin Jean-Louis is an attorney for content creators, creatives, and entrepreneurs at her own firm, Jean-Louis Law. She works with bloggers, influencers, dancers, and podcasters, all people she considers non-traditional entertainers. She joins me now not to give legal advice, but to inform us on our rights as creators. Welcome, Merlin. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the fact that you are someone who has a history of dance and a dance practice and how that intersects. Because we're going to talk about intellectual property. And I was fascinated on your website. You mentioned your dance practice you, you have here. We help creatives and entrepreneurs become CEOs. And you also say, as a former dancer, I founded this law firm with a special mission. What is that mission? That mission is to help creatives and entrepreneurs feel like they're in charge of their careers. When I was a dancer, I danced semi-professionally prior to going to law school. I saw a lot of people be exploited, be taken advantage of because they didn't have knowledge of certain things related to business practices. And I thought, okay, I understand that a lot of your energy is supposed to be spent creating the art, but some of that energy should be spent making sure your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted as well. So... How did you go from being a dancer to a lawyer? What led you in this direction? I've been involved in the law since I was a kid. I interned at the town attorney's office when I was a teenager. I interned at a law firm during college. And after college for three years, I worked as an assistant paralegal at a big law firm. So I've always been interested in the law, but I've always also been interested as a creative. I traveled along the East Coast, just dancing. So I met a attorney who looked like me. She was black and she worked in IP, the IP department at the firm. And I had a discussion with her and I was like, oh, I discovered what intellectual property was and understood there was a creative side to the law. Can you explain what intellectual property is? It's yeah. a term that I've become very familiar with producing a podcast. What is it? Yeah, I'd say if I was to break it down, there are three major types of intellectual property. The first type, which I don't practice at all, is patents. That relates to inventions, the protection of inventions. Next up, we have copyright which relates to the protection of creative works, choreographic pieces, novels, films, anything that has the ability to be original, uh, a tangible form of medium. And lastly, trademarks. Uh, basically, you can think about brand protection. Things like the Nike Swoosh logo. Basically, someone has a brand, it's used in association with the sale of goods and services, and ultimately, people will make money off of that. So I was born in 1969. And so when I was a kid in Baltimore, I started hearing hip hop, which, you know, it was at the time and still very often remixing older songs into new songs. And there were all sorts of intellectual property fights over, you know, like if you're sampling Bootsy Collins in your rap song, who has what right of way, though that was stuff that was really in the public eye many years ago. Mm-hmm. where Where's the moving target of intellectual property now and where creators need to be thinking about it? I'd say, given in mind what's popular now, I'd say influencers, like that type of world, creative world, where content can be created on various platforms of social media, such as Facebook, TikTok, etc., uh, YouTube. That concept of copyright protection or copyright ownership 
still comes to play. If you have music in the background that's not, you know, technically licensed to you, you may have an issue. Certain types of influencers, I like to liken them as being mini film producers. If you're on YouTube, you're basically creating a film. <laughs> if you're on TikTok, you're basically creating a film. The same issues that Paramount and Warner Brothers deal with, you deal with on a smaller extent. But those issues related to clearance regarding of copyright, trademarks, likeness, right? Someone's ability to use someone's likeness and image, they all still come to play. So give me an example, not an actual person, of course, because they're your clients, but an example of like what kind of client mm-hmm. might or potential client might come to you and what kind of questions might they ask? Yeah. What I like to do when people come up to me is I like to give them what I call an assessment. I'm like a doctor, a legal doctor. Like, you know what your issues are, but you don't know what the law is regarding running your business. And so Mm. I have to poke and prod and ask certain questions to provide you with a diagnosis. My job is to assess risk. So I'd say the major things that people come up to me are about, okay, what do I do when I first start a business? And I have to say in general that I want you to protect your assets, your brand, and your content, your ABCs. And the tools in my arsenal include contracts, trademarks, copyright, and business structure, LLCs, and corporations. What we're seeing in this era right now, among other things, is that a lot of people, especially but not only younger people, are opting out of traditional employment, you know, the FTE, and doing their own thing. Do you think that there's a greater need for services like yours? I don't want people to think that they need lawyers when there is a problem. I think that's a misconception. Mm. Okay, a lot of people think that they think lawyers, they, people automatically assume that I, I engage in litigation, going to court, having conflicts. Like my job is to prevent the conflicts. So I, I hope for the best, but I prepare for the worst. And if you prepare for the worst, that means you have to entail someone like me who's <laughs> going to tell you how to protect yourself. But I, I do think that, like you said, Gen Z is a lot more entrepreneurial. Then I'm millennial. I'm an older millennial, but uh, they're a lot more entrepreneurial than, than my generation was. And so I, I do think that they do have a higher need for these type of services that I provide. We just finished a conversation with two book editors mm-hmm. about diversity in book publishing and also just cultural criticism. And cultural criticism, of course, is interesting because it's people who write and speak about other people's work and analyze it. Mm-hmm. Aside from that specific area of publishing, how do you interact with publishing as an industry and, and what kinds of questions come up around people who are producing the written work? Yeah, I help authors, number one, if they get an agent, I help them establish the rights or obligations in that relationship, but also to help them with their publishing agreements or audiobooks agreements as well. So a lot of what I do for to help them is to, with their contract drafting and negotiation. I would say that some people do not believe they have power. They think that if they're presented with a contract in a PDF form, they have to sign it. I'm going to tell them, no, you don't know, you know to do that. What we're going to do is convert it to Word. We're going to mark it up. And then we're going to bring it to the other side because every person, if someone's giving you an opportunity, that means they understand your value. So you have to understand your value first and bring it to the table and make sure that you understand what's happening so you can properly negotiate what you want. I love it. Knowledge is power. Merlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Farai. Appreciate it. That was Merlin Jean-Louis of Jean-Louis Law. This 
This week on Sipping the Political Tea, we did it live. Earlier this week, I had the pleasure of inviting two of our favorite collaborators on the show to a fundraising event, Karen Atia and Erin Haynes. Karen Atia is a columnist at the Washington Post and our body politic contributor. And Erin Haynes, of course, is OBP's political contributor and editor at large at the 19th. We recorded and repackaged a version of our live conversation. Welcome, Erin. Farai, it's our anniversary. Welcome. Thank you. You are popping. Yes, one year and counting. One year and counting. And also joined by Our Body Politic contributing columnist Karen Atia. Welcome back to Our Body Politic, Karen. Hey, guys. I'm so happy to be here. Let's start with someone who manifested greatness. This is just sadness and and devastation. Author and feminist Bell Hooks, who was born Gloria Jean Watkins, passed away on the day that we're taping. Uh, We're recording on Wednesday at the age of 69. And if you are someone who understands the, the journey of race, particularly Black women and womanhood generally, you were probably influenced by bell hooks, whether you realize it or not. And so there's just so many different Twitter threads right now with just genius. And I saw that an interview that Melissa Harris Perry did with bell hooks just reached a 1 million views. You know, I think people today push through to watch that. Erin, let me start with you. What is the context in which you put her or you understand her or you connect to her work? Yeah, I mean, look, she was ours, right? I mean, I am a Black woman. How did her work not impact me? I was trying to think, you know, because a lot of people were sharing on Twitter kind of their stories of when they first encountered or engaged with Bell Hooks. Like, I can't remember her not just kind of being in my atmosphere. You know what I mean? And so I think that that is why this one is hard. Bell Hooks, uh, for me, I mean, this is the woman who first kind of turned on the light bulb for me, that that feminism was not the sole purview of white women, right? That, That we could consider our race as well as our gender and that we could be, you know, really bold and unapologetic because of our lived experience, right? That it was not a liability. And so, like, that is something that I'm able to think really deeply about every single day in my work at the 19th. And I wouldn't have had that foundation without Bell Hooks. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it sucks that she is an ancestor now, but I mean, her work, I know, is going to continue to resonate for generations of Black women to come. And also, we are now charged with carrying that work forward. So, yeah. Yeah. And Karen, what about you? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is this is the power and, and the magic and the privilege of, of being a writer and one so prolific as her is that she's not gone. Her words are immortal. Yes. Immortal. And as long as, as we read and remember her words, she is, she's never going to go away. Right. And, you know, I shared this quote on Twitter about, and, you know, back to, to COVID and even our times of being apart, being separated. So much of her work has to do with community and has to do with finding. And I I think the quote I shared was, um, Healing can rarely, if ever, is healing done in isolation. Right. Yes. Healing, true healing is in communion. And I think um, I'm thinking about this a lot, um, about how her work was about healing and how we forming community and is, is a radical but so necessary act. And I think it can feel the fact that hope and love were so much a part of her fierceness, right? Like those coexisted. Yes. It wasn't 
soft. It was a it was a fierce and radical belief in hope and love that I'm sitting with a lot. And I'm like, how do we how do we continue this community even when we're still separated, even in a time of a lot of unhealed traumas and unhealed pain? How can we help heal each other? So I think I'm thinking a lot about that. But yeah, she's an ancestor, which means she's walking beside us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I see that Jesse Steigerwald, a a friend of mine, posted justice demands integrity. Another quote from Bell. What, What do you think about that? Like we recently on the show had on Reginald Dwayne Betts talking about how to be proximate to the harms that we ourselves cause, even those of us who think of ourselves as just, think of ourselves as righteous. All of us do harms in some ways or the other. Some of us are more aware than others, and some of us have more integrity than others. What do you think of that whole idea, Erin, of justice demands integrity? What does that mean to you? You know, I think what it what it is 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 uh, it's about accountability, right? And and Bell Hooks was about nothing if she wasn't about accountability. And and just as Karen was kind of saying, really just kind of redefining uh, or reclaiming that mantle of of strong black woman to not just be you know the person that that everybody else counts on, but the person whose strength was also in their vulnerability was also in that kind of calling for strength in numbers in terms of community but also using that strength to then say that people must be accountable, that that there is no justice without integrity. And by the way, there is pretty much a bell hooks uh, quote for any in every situation. Yes. Uh, I'm seeing so many people quoting uh, so many of her prolific words on Twitter, and that is, that is because she resonated with so many people across so many different aspects of our democracy, of our society, uh, of, of feminism. I mean, I think this is the thing, and back to this this idea of of integrity. I mean, if you you know take kind of the etymology and the word of it, I mean, integration, right? The, mm-hmm. of the pieces becoming the whole instead of you know patriarchy. And you know, Bell Hooks has, has written about this about our efforts at feminism or equality, not just trying to replicate the systems of domination, not just trying to replicate mm-hmm. the systems of of power and violence, like as Black women, we're not trying to be white men, <laughs> right, to, to gain power. And in fact, she would say, or she did say, or right, that that is not true power. We need each other. I think that's yeah. the whole yeah. essence of all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I could go on about this all day, but we don't have all day. And there's <laughs> these things coming up next year called the midterms. I think I heard yep. something about that. Erin, what kind of discussions are you having inside the newsroom of the 19th and all? Are you hearing about key states or issues to watch in the midterms? Yeah. Uh, so uh, a couple of things. I mean, look, for my money, it's Georgia and Pennsylvania uh, that are particularly mm-hmm. interesting. Probably it's because Georgia is my home state and Pennsylvania is the state where I live now. So in Georgia, you've got Senator Raphael Warnock, who is running outright to keep the seat that he just won in that special election last January. It's like, wow, he just won that seat. And now he's been campaigning ever since, uh, right? But potentially helping him out at the top of the ticket next year is Stacey Abrams, who we know is running for governor uh, in a race that is sure to draw national attention and money and maybe even a record turnout in an off-year election. Pennsylvania is also one to watch because it's wide open, right? Uh, Senator Pat Toomey announced his retirement. And so this was the state that clinched it really for Biden and Harris in 2020. So I'm really curious to see kind of how Democrats' fortunes have changed in Pennsylvania, if at all. Since last November, uh, that was something that was really fascinating to see 
when Pennsylvania went for Trump in 2016 and just kind of where voters in uh, counties that were Obama-Trump, you know, what motivated those folks. So if, if we have some of those dynamics, I think Pennsylvania could absolutely portend some things uh, headed into 2024. But like, where are voters in Pennsylvania on the economy? How they recover from the pandemic? Are, are things like the culture wars going to reach a state like Pennsylvania on, you know, issues like abortion or guns or voting rights or education? Like, I'm just really curious about a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what are what are you keeping your eye on, Karen? Yeah, so I mean, right now I'm joining you guys from from Washington D.C., but normally I'm based in in Texas, yeah. um, where we also have uh, some big state elections, the governorship race, of course, the Abbott and and Bader work, who's just oh, put yeah. his name in the in the hat, cowboy hat. Rodeo ring, mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever you want to call it, sex and insert um, metaphor here. Yeah, exactly. And insert that here. I mean, I'm really looking at um how much these midterms, like how effective it will be to run on this message that this is a relitigation or a referendum mm-hmm. of the Trump years. We do see to me what I'm looking for is more so Trumpism and that replication of the playbook by various elected officials that are that are running next year and how much energy and time and money and resources they put into propping up Trump's big lie and pandering to their bases that way. Also with the Democrats as well. I mean, how far can they really get uh, by on saying, well, that person was for Trump. Trump was bad. Don't vote for them, vote for me. Right. I think now we have, we have enough records, right. Of uh, the current incumbents. So if I'm Beto works, for instance, or the Democrats in Texas, We've gone through a power grid crash. We've gone through COVID and the economy, right? So there's enough records to where, like, to a certain extent, Trump shouldn't really be a factor. But again, I'd be really curious to see how much there's going to be policy and and COVID in the present, <laughs> remaining in the present, versus, like, dragging us back to 2015, 2016, 2017, and all over again. So this, you know, I'm a big social sciences nerd, and this fascinated me. It was published in August of this year. Eric D. Knowles, Linda Tropp, and Mal Magami. It's a paper called When White Americans See, quotes, non-whites as a group, belief in minority collusion and support for white identity politics. So just bear with me. I'm going to read a little bit of the abstract. White Americans may find diversity threatening in part because they construe non-white Americans as a coherent social and political force. We argue that this perception manifests in a belief that minority groups collude against white people and that white people should act as a political bloc to defend in-group interests. Mm. So essentially what this paper is saying is that if white Americans view people of color as a group, it creates or there is a hostility and tension. I think about places like Georgia, where different groups of people of color did act together, Asian Americans, Latinos, Blacks. What are we supposed to make of, like, where is the mountaintop? (laughs) You know, how's that for a question? Where's the mountaintop if we're just, like, locking heads like this? Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up Georgia, and that is an interesting case study because, you know, there had to be a critical mass of white folks who felt like they were part of that coalition, and you saw even, I mean, Stacey Abrams in her not becoming governor, even I love in, I love that you're like not becoming governor, not like lost the election, but look, she, not she, becoming she, governor. She she would say, I did not lose that election, I did not become governor. So in her in her not becoming governor, she crisscrossed 
the state, appealing to, Mm -hmm. you know, rural white folks in South Georgia. I could talk to a white farmer who would say, she talked about her parents being, you know, working the land in Mississippi. That Mm -hmm. resonated with me. Treating some of these folks as a foregone conclusion is, is not a winning strategy. Making the case to at least some amount of them could make a difference in, in, in some of the coalition building that will definitely have to happen, especially in states where people of color are not the majority or do not have the numbers to really vote for folks that, that they feel like will represent their interests based on their lived experience, uh, among other factors. So we have a choice. You let me know. We either can talk about Stacey Abrams or we can do our crystal ball in of like things to keep an eye on for next year. Where do we want to go? What do y'all want to do? Yeah. These are both topics that are exciting. I don't know. I, I, how about for Mel- <laughs> To kind of tie in like the Stacey Abrams angle there. I mean, I think we're going to just continue to see this trend of the local and the state level becoming or continuing to become national um, mm-hmm. stories. And then frankly, I think what is frightening me about democracy, but I would frankly like, I would like to, I would like Democrats and the left to start framing this as uh, issues of freedom and human mm. rights, civil rights. I think we're going to see a lot of assaults on rights that we thought were settled, right? We're continuing to see that with Voting Rights Act, with abortion, with uh, civil rights, with the profiling and the the xenophobia um, that's happening. And I think we're going to see, and I was talking to a colleague about this today, I mean, even in my home state, living in in Texas right now, I feel like this is a picture of, in some ways, what post-democracy looks like. Mm -hmm. like We're going to increasingly see a country that looks like a patchwork of states where where you live determines the rights that you have. And we're going to increasingly see just kind of this return to this kind of like Calhounist states' rights, challenging and, and upending and, and lawsuiting against, you know, federal and, and national policies. And I just look ahead and I'm worried very much mm-hmm. about the state of that. It's like this balkanization um, that's yeah. like rapidly happening. And I think there's going to be assaults on, on our rights and on, on our freedoms. And I wish like Democrats could get it together. I don't know if Democrats will get it together. But I, I just say, you know, find your communities now. Find like your support now because mm-hmm. there's, there's going to be some, some drag out fights, both on the cultural front and the cultural wars. And I think politically as well. Yeah, let me just, you know, tag onto that. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that as someone who has a lot of information about my family history, particularly uh, landowning, literate Black farmers before the Civil War who faced an incredible headwind just to be free, in some ways, what we're facing is potentially a return to a kind of conditional freedom. Our freedom has always been conditional in many ways, but a return to a conditional freedom that we have not seen since the end of Reconstruction, yeah. and that is this patchwork. But And Aaron, it feels more whether, conditional than ever, um, you mm-hmm. know, particularly along lines of race and gender, right? And, and, and for marginalized folks in general in this country. So I'm I say I'm not a crystal baller, and yet I'm getting ready to reflect on something that I predicted this year that I feel like is coming to pass and that we are going to see even more of heading into next year. So I wrote this piece on the 19th at the beginning of the year 
uh, asserting that women were going to be on the front lines of this battle for the soul of America, which did not stop, by the way, with the election of Joe Biden Mm -hmm. and Kamala Harris. So for one, that includes Republican women, 127 Republican women planning to run for House seats this year. I think that the fight over education— 127, the, wow. 127. Uh, the fight over education, the fight over abortion, undoubtedly are going to be factors that are pulling them into the fray. Um, but Republican women are also winning races. I mean, uh, Amanda Becker, shout out to you, Amanda, if you're listening. My mm-hmm. colleague at the 19th, uh, she wrote about the Republican gains in Congress and state legislatures earlier this year. I think also, you know, we talk about, you know, years being the year of the woman— I think you're the Black woman next year in particular because next year is the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm's historic run for president Amazing. as the first woman and first Black woman to seek the Democratic Party's nomination in 1972. So historically, we know there's been this lack of political diversity of Black women and women. That is something that is changing and I think is going to continue to change in 2022. you got five Black women right now running for governor, eight Black women who currently serve as mayors of major American cities, and Black women running uh, for Senate in open seats in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Missouri. And they're also challenging Republican incumbents in states like Wisconsin, South Carolina, Val Demings down in Florida, challenging Marco Rubio. So, I mean, you know, I think it's going to be a really exciting year for women in politics again. And so I predict that there will be plenty of work for us to do at the 19th, but really for anybody who cares about the exciting dynamics of gender and politics in this country. And we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for joining me, Aaron and Karen. Happy holidays. Happy, Happy holidays. holidays. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you, guys. That was Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, and Karen Atia, columnist at The Washington Post. You can find more live events in 2022 by visiting our page, ourbodypolitic.com. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by LWC. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua is executive producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Our senior editor is Verilyn Williams. Paulina Velasco and Sarah McClure are our senior producers. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Our political booker is Bridget McAllister. Emily Daly is assistant producer. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Elizabeth Nakano, and Natina Bean. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.